of new conflicts and exchanges between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. And again, in each of these conflicts and exchanges, Jesus reveals his divine wisdom and goodness while he simultaneously exposes the evil that is in the hearts, the hardness of the hearts of these individuals. And so in Matthew chapter 22, uh, verses 15 through 22, which we studied last week, Jesus faced and answered a question meant for entrapment put to him by not the Pharisees this time, but the Pharisees' disciples and the Herodians, those who followed Herod. And so far, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians have all approached Jesus, attempting to trip him up and attempting to trap him. That was the whole purpose. So we have this series of different religious leaders that are trying to do that. And they all had failed. And all the crowds knew that they had failed. And now the Sadducees are stepping up to the plate. And now it's their turn to try to trap Jesus. They want to have their shot at Jesus. And the pattern is the same every time. They ask a question. Jesus answers. And the crowd responds. So take a minute and just read chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. In today's text, Jesus is confronted by the Sadducees. And this is the wing of Judaism, the Levitical priesthood, that sort of run the operations, ran the operations of the temple. And regarding the Bible, they were the strictest in in some respects. They believed that only the first five books, the Torah, uh, were the holy writings of God. And since the Torah doesn't directly speak of the resurrection, The Sadducees taught that when we die, we simply return to the dust. That there is no resurrection. They didn't believe in angels um, and any of that. Anything that was supernatural. And there's a basic principle of life that goes something like this. What you believe determines how you behave. And how you behave determines what you get. Uh, Now that isn't always true in everything, but what we believe definitely determines what we be how we behave. I wanted Anne, I mean Amy, to read Romans eight again. So would you just read that again, Amy? Life, 
Do you believe that? Because what you believe will definitely impact the way you pray, the way you live, the way you function. And what we'll see in the Sadducees that because they believed in such a powerless God, they lived a powerless life. And I think that's true for many today in Christianity. They really don't believe in an all-powerful God. They just say, okay, he's out there, and I give him lip service, but when I go through the difficulties of my life, I don't go to him. Instead, I look to all other things. And so do I live and do I function as a, as a person who truly believes that God is all-powerful, all-loving, that he loves me, that he cares for me, that he guides me, that he directs me, that he forgives me, and that he is all-powerful and that I can give him anything? Or do I say those things with my mouth but believe something else? And so, that, and what, what I believe will actually dictate the way I behave. That principle is basically true in all areas of our lives. And when it comes to our spiritual lives, we all have certain beliefs about God and how we interact with him. And those beliefs determine greatly how we live. Because if we really don't think God cares about us or is active in our lives, then what he asks us to do will not seem very important or urgent. See, if God says forgive others, and we really don't believe that God is active in our lives, forgiving others isn't going to be that important. If God says love others, and we really don't think God is really that active in our life, that command to love others isn't going to mean that much. If God says serve others, and we don't really take that God is that active in our life, then we're not going to be that serious about serving others. And, and most of us also have this practical theology, meaning how what we believe translates into what we do. And for many, that practical theology is both vague and mostly accommodates our desires. So I will listen to people talk, and they'll have this practical theology that God just has to meet my desires. You know, and it's no longer God having authority over us, but it's us having authority over God. And if we have authority over God, then we don't really have to listen to what God says. Um, now, all of that has absolutely nothing to do with what's going on with the Sadducees other than the fact that the Sadducees had such a small view of God that they didn't believe that God could do anything supernatural. And so that's how they lived. That's how they became so limited in everything they do. 
And again, the Sadducees were the aristocratic, the politically connected with Rome, and the academic elite. And, as I and again, they only believed that the, the first five books were the holy writings of God. They believed that all we see is all we get. They rejected a belief in anything supernatural. They had religion, they were Jewish, but they didn't believe in a God that could do anything particularly amazing. See, I think that there's a lot of Sadducees in the church today. We really don't think that God can do anything particularly amazing. So they didn't have a great amount of hope. They didn't have a great amount of faith beyond what they could achieve by themselves in the present. And if you take a look at what's going on in people's lives today, the biggest thing you'll see is an absence of hope. They don't have hope. We've, I've lost hope that my marriage will get better. I've lost hope that my kids will change. I've lost hope that the finances will get better. I've lost hope that the economy. I've lost hope. I've just, I've lost hope. And so we're no different. And it's where do, what do we hope in? What do we hold on to? We also see from the Sadducees something that I think is a danger among people. You can be completely biblical and be completely wrong. Okay? You can be completely biblical and be completely wrong. See, the Sadducees have taken a position that includes the scripture but isn't scriptural. So they can say, well, this is what I believe in the, four, you know, the five books, but because it doesn't say anything else, then it must not be true. So they are basing what they believe on part of the scripture, but not the whole counsel of scripture. And I think that happens a lot also. We sort of say, this is what I see, or we take this one text, and we use that text, and we say they base our whole theology on that instead of seeing the whole counsel of God. So again, for them, as well as for us, the question is one of authority. Do you have authority over God's word? Or does God's word have authority over you? What do you believe? Because what you believe will determine how you behave, and how you behave will determine what you get. And so again, how you will start will impact where you end up. And the Sadducees started with a weak view of God and God's word. So when they searched the scriptures, they found what they wanted to find. And again, it was a weak view of God. So this morning in, our, in these verses, I'd like to look at two particular things. First of all, in verses 23 through 28, you see the question. And we're told right away here in this passage that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And so, in fact, the question that they decide to ask Jesus is designed not to clarify the resurrection, but to show the absurdity of anyone who would believe in the resurrection based on the first five books of the scripture. So the Sadducees presented Jesus a question with the hope to hum humiliate him as um, as they had tried to do with the Pharisees before, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees pretty much hated each other. It would be taking, like taking the liberals and the fundamentalists of today 
and putting them in a room and say, let's debate a theological term. They will never come to an agreement. Um, and so you have the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So in verse 23, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies, having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. Now, this is referred to uh, a Levirate or Levirate? L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. I'm looking to, to Anne to give me a little bit of... Yeah, I, I wasn't sure either. Um, but, but anyway, it's marriage to a husband's brother. That was the, the law. And it occurred in this case when a wife's husband would die before there were any male children were born. And it was designed to protect women in a society where they were not able to care for themselves. A woman who was a widow, especially at a relatively young age, was in an extremely precarious position. So this was like, this is going to be her protection. A family member will now marry her. It was also a way to force the family to take care of her. Secondly, it also protected the name and the inheritance of that person. And so the, the line the, and the land of a faithful Israelite. And again, it was viewed as a righteous practice. So in Genesis chapter 38, we have a case where two men did not do it and they were punished for their, for their refusal to fulfill their obligation. And also, uh, Boaz did that for Ruth. So you have this situation, and so now the, the Sadducees are just questioning Jesus. And think about it. They talk, the law is talked about too. They bring in seven to just show how absurd this whole idea of the resurrection was. And so you can imagine these Sadducees finishing the story and then at the end saying, okay, now, whose wife is she in the resurrection? And almost saying it with a smirk. And I find it interesting because how many times today when we have some confrontational theology or confrontational doctrine, or some belief system, and we're sharing it with others, what they do is they come up with some absurd example or question in hopes to trick a person and then not having an answer in order they can see your theology is for idiots. And that's basically what the Sadducees are doing to Jesus. Um, to grasping at any problem that they can raise in order to keep from dealing with the gospel. And it's not new to us today. It was done back then, and it's been done for thousands of years. J.C. Ryle in the last century wrote this, Supposed cases are often the favorite stronghold in which an 
unbelieving mind loves to entrench itself. Such a mind will often set up a shadow of its own imagining and then fight with it as if it were a truth. Such a mind will often refuse to look at the overwhelming mass of plain evidence by which Christianity is supported and will fasten down on some single difficulty which it fancies to be unanswerable. And the talk and arguments of people of this character should never shake our faith for a moment. But yet people do that today. They'll look at one little thing and say, that doesn't make sense to me. And because that doesn't make sense to me, all this other evidence must not be true. So I can't surrender. I can't put my life in the hands of Christ. And so what they believe dictates their behavior, which dictates what they get. Now, it's interesting, this is the only time Jesus deals with the Sadducees. This is the only time he deals with the skeptics. And you just got to wonder, maybe there's a sign for us, that when people just get into that type of game playing, it's, it's time to just say, you know what? When you're ready, I'm available, but I'm not going to get into this game playing with you. I'm not going to get into theological game playing when there's important issues that have to be dealt with in the lives of people when it comes to Christ. So the second point we see um, is in verses 29 through 33. That they don't understand the scriptures and they, in verse 29, Jesus answered and said, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. So he's going to the Sadducees and going, you know what? You're asking an absurd question. And the reason you're asking an absurd question is because you don't understand the scriptures and not only do you not understand the scripture, you don't understand the power of God. And once again, sometimes in the church today, people will say things and it's because they don't understand the scripture and they don't understand the power of God to change a life. Um, so basically answers parallels, his answer parallels his diagnosis, but in reverse order. In his diagnosis in verse 29, he had said that they didn't understand the scriptures or the power of God. But in his answer, he shows that they don't understand the power of God first. And then he shows how they don't understand the scripture. They don't understand the power of God because they don't believe that God is able to raise somebody from the dead. Their God is too small. Their God is too small to transform a person. Their God is too small to change a person. Their God is too small to perform something supernatural. So that's how they believe. And then Jesus goes on to say they don't understand the scriptures. In short, Jesus tells them that they have no idea what they're talking about because they do not know the Bible and they do not know God. Now, that's sort of a shocking rebuke to the people who are taking care of the temple. Um, you know, I mean, really? Um, remember, the Sadducees were sort of this background, then let the Pharisees and everybody else take care of it. When the Sadducees became a little bit upset with Jesus is when Jesus cleansed the temple and it affected the Sadducees' income. What affected the Sadducees, um, it's right here. It'll come later. Yeah, power. Thank you. That's a good enough word. Thank you. 
So I guess it wasn't here. It was right there. Um, so the Sadducees and the Pharisees had erred because they had assumed that life after the resurrection would be the same as it was inclu including marriage. For in verse 30 it says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. Now we need to understand that we have no understanding of what heaven's going to be like. But you can almost go out throughout history, see all kinds of pictures, assumptions, ideas of what it's really going to be like. And one of those questions was about marriage. And we know from this verse that marriage is not going to be the same. It's going to be different. Um, marriage is not going to be a part of heaven. Now, some of you are thinking, that's not good. I, I want to be married to this person for eternity. Others might be secretly rejoicing. I'm not sure. <laughs> and, Whoa, yeah, let eternity come. Um, <laughs> I wasn't looking at you guys. Um, <laughs> In this current life, marriage is one of the greatest blessings God has given us. Remember, it was God that said it was not good for Adam to be alone. By God's design, Adam had a need for a partner, and he provided that partner that was going to be a helpmate, that there was going to be an intimate relationship, that there was going to be, it was going to be one of the greatest gifts that God could give us beyond salvation. And so, you know, so people sort of assumed that, okay, this will just go on for eternity. And for some, it might be a real hard idea imagining no marriage in heaven. And that's again where we limit God. Because God says, I'm going to show you a love. I'm going to show you a power that love will be so perfected that even your love for your spouse today will far exceed anything that you could possibly understand. And you will be in perfect harmony and perfect communion with the people in heaven and you will be in perfect communion and perfect harmony with God himself. So will there be marriage? No. Will there be an enhanced love? A more powerful love? A different love? Yes. Um, and it, he says, you will be like the angels. Not that you will be angels, but that you will be like angels. So once again, Jesus contradicts the Sadducees one more time because they didn't believe in the existence of angels either. So now he's contradicted them about the resurrection. He's contradicted them about angels. And he said, you guys have no understanding of the power of God and you have no understanding about the word of God. And then we get a sense of a dramatic change that will take place um, because he's talking about because we will be like angels, we will still be people, but changed people. People who are equal with the angels in spiritual nature. Equal them in being deathless, glorified and eternal. 
And we get a sense of this dramatic change in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so also in the resurrection of the dead, it is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So he's given us an indication of what's good, the transformation and the change that is going to take place in people's lives. And the Pharisees say, or the Sadducees say, no, I don't, I, I don't believe that. Well, if you don't believe something that God says, how do you think it's going to impact your prayer life? How do you think it's going to impact the way you read the scriptures? How is it going to impact the way you interact with the people in your life? So, the Sadducee also failed in understanding the scripture. And Jesus explained to them in verse 31 and 32, But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. See, the Sadducees had used Moses as their authority. Now Jesus does the same. And he said, you know, when he was at the burning bush. And Luke records, as Jesus is quoting Exodus 3, 6, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And now he's not talking about the God of the dead. He's talking about the God of the living. The verb tense there is the God of the living. So he uses the exact Moses also to show, no, he, we're not talking about the God of the dead. These are people who are all living eternally with God. And so once again, he just smashes the Sadducees' arguments. Now, the response of the people at this time is that they were absolutely astounded. Absolutely amazed. They had never heard a Pharisee speak like this. He cuts the Sadducees down in one stroke. But even though the people are astounded, they do not worship him. In a few short days, they're going to call for his death. They're going to call for his crucifixion. See, what you believe determines what you, how you behave. And even though they were astounded, they still would not believe. And because they would not believe, they said, crucify him. Crucify him. And for the Sadducees, their only interest was in destroying him. They failed, so they left in shame. But still stubborn in their pride and continuing to plot how they could destroy Jesus. They had been offered hope and they rejected it. All of us have been offered hope. But many of us reject it. We hold on to our own different belief systems. And you know, it's a dangerous thing to say 
I will only believe when I get it all figured out. Because we get to the point where we think we can actually figure it out. We can fully understand all the mysteries of God. We can understand the things that he said you will never be able to figure out. And if you're waiting to figure it out before you surrender your life to me, you're going to be waiting for eternity. And when the resurrection comes, there's going to be one group that's going one direction and there's going to be another group that's not. And it's our choice of which group we're going to be a part of. Our minds are finite. finite. His is not. We will never be able to understand everything in the mind of God. But the things that are necessary for us for salvation, the things that are necessary for us to live a full life of faith, the things that are necessary for us to put our trust in Christ, the things that are necessary for us to say, you know what? God does make a difference. And he's made a difference in my life. And because of that, he can make a difference in other people's lives. Those things are clear. Those are clear. Um, that even a child can understand them. And so we don't have to make a compliment. You see, the question isn't whether or not there's going to be a resurrection. The question is, what are we going to do because we believe in a resurrection? Because we believe in the power of God because we believe in the authority of the scripture over us instead of us having authority over the scripture. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together to worship you. And Lord, help us to just be reminded on a regular basis that our behavior is a clear indication of what we really believe. And when our behavior is not consistent with what we know or with what your word says, help us in our unbelief. Help us that we truly can hold on to your truth, hold on to your word that we can believe that we have a God who is so powerful that he can transform the worst sinner. That he can change hearts and lives. And that we live as a witness and as a proof to lives that have been changed by the love of God. That even as we celebrate on, in September... Uh, uh, baptisms but that's a public proclamation of acknowledging that yes we have turned our life over to Christ and because of that our lives are changed help us to continue to hold on to your promises hold on to your truth and let that truth continue to challenge us to be a different people we thank you, we praise you and we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And all God's people said.